0: The old pilot's plane tales. Tizard's trunk. It's 1940 and Britain is alone amongst the countries of Europe to stand against the progress of the military forces of Germany. It would be an understatement to say that the war wasn't going well. Hours before the German invasion of France, by a lightning advance through the Low Countries, it became clear that Britain no longer had confidence in its Prime Minister, Chamberlain, and his prosecution of the war, so he resigned his position. Churchill was asked to lead a coalition government forward. His speeches were a great inspiration to the embattled British and his first as Prime Minister included the famous lines
1: I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime.
0: His oratory was electrifying, and it stirred life into the country when he told Parliament and the British people
1: which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old
0: But his words were tinged with the realism that should he be unable to convince the new world, America, to join the British people in their struggle, all might be lost. The manufacturing resources in the United Kingdom were at full stretch, and there was little spare capacity left to research and develop new technologies – Also, with the fall of France and with an invasion force assembling only 30 miles from the coast of England, despite Churchill's brave words, there was always the chance that should Britain fall, the secrets of its scientists and engineers would be lost to the enemy. So it was that, in the darkest of hours, Churchill was persuaded that he should share the country's most treasured and vital technologies with the United States in the hope that they might aid us in return. Churchill had serious reservations about freely giving away such valued technologies. Nevertheless, so desperate was he for American help that he approved the plan. Churchill communicated directly with President Roosevelt about the possibilities of a mission to be led by Sir Henry Tizard, the man who had conceived the idea. Born in Kent in 1885, Tizard was the son of a naval officer. He studied at Magdalene College, Oxford, working on mathematics and chemistry, after which he became a researcher at the Royal Institute before returning to Oxford as a fellow. During the First World War, he became interested in aeronautics and learned to fly, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the Royal Flying Corps, and then on to the RAF. After the war, he became a reader in chemical thermodynamics at Oxford. I could go on at length, but I think you've probably worked out that he was a very clever chap. Given the go-ahead to approach the Americans, Tizard gathered a small group of experts around him. He had Brigadier Wallace of the British Army, Captain Faulkner from the Royal Navy, Group Captain Pierce of the RAF, but most importantly, Professor John Cockcroft, a nuclear physicist, and Dr. Bowen, a man instrumental in the development of radar. It was late in August 1940 when the material that they were going to take across the Atlantic was assembled and carefully placed in a black Japan deed box. Inside the innocuous-looking box were some of the most closely guarded technological secrets that Britain had to offer. Blueprints, plans, mathematical calculations and projects concerning jet engines, rockets, proximity fuses, sonar, superchargers, gyroscopic gun sights, self-sealing fuel tanks, plastic explosive and a priceless object, worth more than almost everything else put together. At the time, Britain led the world in radar technology. By the start of the war, the RAF had a chain of operating radar stations around the south and east coasts of Britain, which were capable of detecting aircraft at 15,000 feet out to a range of about 150 miles. This system operated on a wavelength of 10 to 13 metres, 23 to 30 megahertz. Airborne radar was also being tested at a wavelength of 1.5 metres, 200 MHz, because it had been appreciated for some time that shorter wavelengths would have considerable advantages for radar. The problem with longer wavelengths was that the antenna couldn't be made highly directional, so ground returns often obscure the weak echoes from an aircraft. The obstacle that faced scientists trying to develop a short-wavelength radar was that the transmitted power and receiver sensitivity decreased rapidly for the shorter wavelengths. It was decided that a 10 cm wavelength was needed to give the radar good target returns and allow it to be made small enough, particularly the antenna systems, to be fitted on aircraft and such. It was in the physics department of the Birmingham University that the most advanced vacuum tubes were being designed and developed. The concept of the magnetron wasn't new, but creating a high-power, stable, multi-chamber cavity device that could be created within a suitable vacuum tube and used to amplify a microwave radar transmitter was the vital breakthrough. It was two chain-home scientists, John Randall and Henry Boot, who created a device that would meet the demands of Bowen's calculations, the cavity magnetron. This device, roughly the size of a dinner plate, could generate radio waves at up to 10 kilowatts of power in the 10-centimeter wavelength microwave radar, at hundreds of times the power previously seen, but in a tiny fraction of the size and weight of earlier equipment. This was the priceless device that lay within the deed box, one of the first twelve production copies of the resonant cavity magnetron. Now even more compact, the production version was small enough to fit in the palm of the hand and looked like a clay pigeon used in skeet shooting, with a few wires poking out. Yet, it could spit out pulses of microwave radio energy so powerful, conventional scientific wisdom still put anything like it years off. It had become Eddie Bowen's job to carry the box up to Liverpool to join the team on their ship. He had already had a few nightmares... Because the box wouldn't fit in the hotel safe, Bowen had spent the night with Britain's greatest military secrets wedged under his bed. In the morning, to add to his discomfort, the cabbie taking him to the train station wouldn't allow the small chest inside the taxi, insisting that it be placed on the roof. He finally reached the train and found the special empty compartment reserved for him and his precious cargo. When the train finally pulled into Liverpool's dockside station, Bowen didn't budge from his seat, following instructions to stay put. At last, a dozen fully armed soldiers marched down the platform and came to a glorious rifle-slapping halt alongside the carriage. A sergeant barked out some orders and dispatched three men to collect the cargo. Telling the story later, Bowen joked, I was beginning to feel that things were well looked after. Alternatively, if this was the enemy making off with Britain's secrets, they were making a spectacular job of it. Finally on board their ship, the box was locked in the strong room and the key holder, the third officer, briefed that in the event of an enemy attack, he should ensure that the box was dumped overboard. Shepherded by a pair of destroyers, the liner zigzagged its way across the Atlantic to dock in Newfoundland. Here, Tizard's trunk, the nickname there given the black box, was taken by the Canadian military to the U.S. border, where it would be moved under U.S. guard to the British embassy in Washington. Now came the difficult part. Tizard didn't just want to hand over the crown jewels, but to have an equitable exchange of sorts that would bring the experts of both countries closer together and benefit both in a technological exchange. In particular, Tizard wanted access to the American Norden bombsite that, with its ability to tie into an aircraft's autopilot, plus its sophisticated stabilizing gyroscope, could outperform the British automatic bombsite. He arrived ready to work, leaving behind a world threatened with imminent disaster where every day, every hour counted. But Washington was still at peace and the weekend was still the weekend. By the time the Tizard Mission sat down with their American counterparts in early September, the Blitz was underway. Their homeland was now subject to the gravest, most sustained aerial assault in history, and its very future might rely on these meetings. They began inauspiciously. The British, so confident in their new capabilities with radar, were surprised that the Americans were unimpressed and more curious about other technologies. The British were shaken. They told the Americans of progress made in anti-tank and anti-aircraft weaponry, which went over fine. They then displayed the design for the VT fuse, the first moment when the Americans seemed intrigued. Whittle's turbojet engine also proved another revelation. The Americans immediately saw the potential, and by 1941 the US Army Air Corps was sending research and development teams to Britain. The Tisar delegation also visited Enrico Fermi, an Italian and naturalised American physicist, and considered by many to be the architect of the atomic bomb at Columbia University. They told Fermi of the work that British nuclear physicists were doing at Birmingham University and their concept for an atomic bomb. Fermi was highly sceptical, mainly because his research was geared towards using nuclear power to produce steam, not atomic bombs. Of course, unknown to all at the time, the portable and deployable atomic bomb would eventually end the war. Tissard had strategically staggered the flow of information, and the last innovation to be presented, he thought, was the most valuable. He had Bowen reveal the box's final item, the cavity magnetron. The Americans were dumbstruck. They had never seen anything like it. They recognised Bowen's work for the genius it was, a revolution in modern warfare, a radar that could be fitted to a plane. After that final reveal came a welter of activity. The Americans now had full faith in the Tizard mission's objectives and aims, and suddenly the Brits had access to U.S. training methods. They observed battle fleet manoeuvres. They were given access to America's Doppler radar, and RCA and Bell Labs, both previously off-limits to the Brits, were now studying their cavity magnetron. Bell agreed to quickly put it into production, and MIT founded the Radiation Lab to facilitate further research and development into microwave technologies. Bowen would later recall these weeks as electric. Tizard wanted only one thing in return, the U.S. Navy's Norden bomb sight, the most advanced technology in high-altitude bombing. The RAF's desires were based on an earlier air demonstration at Fort Benning, where the painted outline of a battleship was the target. At one twenty-seven, while everyone was still searching the sky for the B-17s, six three-hundred-pound bombs suddenly burst at split-second intervals on the deck of the battleship and it was at least 30 seconds later before someone spotted the B-17 at 12,000 feet high above them. The three following B-17s also hit the target, and then a flight of a dozen Douglas B-18 Bolos placed most of their bombs in a separate 600-yard square target outlined on the ground. The Americans, wary of their technology falling into German hands, said no. Handing over the Norden bomb site had become as much a political as a technical problem, and its relative merits were being publicly debated in Congress weekly, while the Navy continued to say that the Norden was the United States' most closely guarded secret. So the hoped-for exchange became a one-way transfer of years of valuable knowledge and prized innovation. The main success of the mission had been the transfer of radar technology so that it could be manufactured in quantity in the US. However, the mission also opened up channels of communication for jet engine and atomic bomb development and is seen as one of the key events in forging the wartime Anglo-American alliance. The UK, though, was in a desperate situation and had felt compelled to release the technology that had an immense commercial impact after the war. Not only that, in order to fight the war, Britain needed funds and access to America's manufacturing might, but this also came at a great cost. Britain was loaned around 60 billion US dollars at today's value which took over sixty years to pay off. On the ship back to England, Tizard completed his last order of business. He owed his nuclear physicist, Professor John Cockcroft, five pounds, a bet they had made that before they could return from the States, Britain would have fallen. Although the Tizard mission was hailed a success, especially in radar development, It is probably significant that on his return to London on the 8th of October 1940, Tizard found that his job no longer existed. When mentioning the Tizard mission, the official historian of the US Office of Scientific Research and Development, James Finney Baxter III, wrote, When the members of the Tizard mission Bought the cavity magnetron to America in 1940. They carried the most valuable cargo ever brought to our shores. If you enjoy Plane Tales, please pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.